0: the sky turned dark as night. When it rained five days and the sky turned dark as night. Then trouble taking place
1: in the low Clark and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street. you just heard is called Backwater Blues sung by a singer named Bessie Smith. Bessie Smith was one of the biggest blues stars of the 1920s and 1930s. She was so popular that she was known as the Empress of the Blues. Her singing was a major influence on blues, jazz, and rock and roll singers who followed her. Smith was graceful and confident, standing at nearly six feet tall and weighing about 200 pounds. Her voice was so bold, she preferred not to use microphones. Smith's work expressed the emotions, frustrations, and even dreams of an entire generation of Black Americans. Now, Bessie was not from North Carolina, but I want to tell you a story, a quick one, about Bessie when she was once in North Carolina. In an article originally printed in the Winston-Salem Journal by Chris Albertson, who went on to write a biography about Smith entitled Empress of the Blues, as Bessie was known in her lifetime, Albertson tells a story about Bessie that involves a run-in with the Ku Klux Klan when she was performing in Concord, North Carolina in 1927. As we'll discuss in this episode, by the time Bessie Smith performed in Concord in 1927, Black voter participation had nearly disappeared in North Carolina. But somehow Bessie Smith did not let the state's allegiance to white supremacy stop her from doing what she did best. In Albertson's article entitled Biography of Bessie Smith, he writes, quote, When aroused, there was no one Bessie would not take on, including the Ku Klux Klan, which tried to interrupt her show in Concord in 1927. Told by a frightened musician that sheeted figures were pulling up the stakes of her tent, she flew into a rage, stomped out and accosted the Klansmen. Quote, What the bleep you think you're doing, she bellowed. I'll get the whole damn tent out here if I have to. You just pick up them sheets and run. The startled Klansman did. End quote. That short story is the inspiration behind a children's book entitled Bessie and the Night Riders, written by Sue Stufacher and illustrated by John Holyfield. Bessie's life was also the subject of an HBO TV film called Bessie, starring Queen Latifah. This next one seems most apropos. Me and My Gin by Bessie Smith. I'm previous episodes, we explored the events leading up to and surrounding the white supremacist campaign of 1898 that culminated in the 1898 Wilmington insurrection and coup d'etat. Now we're going to explore the actions that grew out of the 1898 white supremacist campaign that were, if you could imagine, even more damaging and consequential for African Americans in North Carolina. That would be the Democrat-led white supremacist campaign of 1900 that culminated in North Carolina's Suffrage Amendment of 1900, which engineered the near-complete elimination of blacks from voter participation in North Carolina until the Voting Rights Act of 1965. This campaign would change the course of North Carolina's social and political trajectory and result in seemingly immutable ramifications for Black North Carolinians for decades to come, the effects of which we continue to see today. I've spoken to a number of experts who believe that the 1898 white supremacist campaign was a blueprint not only for the 1900 white supremacist campaign in North Carolina, but also for similar acts of oppression and violence across the South. One of them is David Zucchino, New York Times journalist and author of Wilmington's Lie, The Murderous Coup of 1898 and the Rise of White Supremacy, who helped guide us through the complicated details of the 1898 insurrection in episode two. We'll hear from Zucchino now briefly as he helps us understand the short and long-term implications of the Wilmington massacre and introduce us to North Carolina's 1900 white supremacist campaign led by the state's Democrats who had assumed power at the time. I've talked to a number of experts who believe that the white supremacy campaign of 1898 was really a dry run or a blueprint for the white supremacy campaign of 1900 that eventually led to the loss of the vote for Black Men in North Carolina. So, my question to you is what do you think the impact of the Wilmington massacre was on the people, the Black people who were left in Wilmington or who decided to stay in Wilmington, who were not part of that exodus of people who Ooh. left after that? And also the rest of North Carolina, you know, keeping in mind that even in Durham, when we talk about Black Wall Street in Durham, the leaders there were also considered accommodating in a sense, but it was really living under the shadow of Wilmington.
2: Absolutely. I I think the Wilmington coup had incredible long-term impact, you know, going 60 or 70 years. First of all, it inspired white supremacists across the South and showed them that white supremacists could actually kill Black men with impunity overthrow a multiracial government with impunity, and it inspired a a lot of similar actions around the South after this. And almost immediately, the white supremacists, the populists, their two main goals were the first was to keep black men from voting. And the second was to keep them out of public office. And they were incredibly successful. In 1896, there were 126,000 Black men in North Carolina registered to vote. That's 126,000. Four years after the coup in 1902, the number was down to 6,100. So you can see how incredibly effective this was in just diminishing and and almost just killing off the Black vote. And in fact, from 1898 for the next 70-some years until after the voting rights, Act of 1965, Black men and later women did not vote in any significant numbers for those 70 years, and this was true across the South as well. And as far as the elected office, in 1898, there was exactly one Black man in Congress, and neither the House Or the Senate, and his name was George Henry Wright, and he was from a district adjacent to Wilmington. And as part of the white supremacy campaigns of 1898 and 1900, uh, led by Josephus Daniels at the News and Observer, they hounded Congressman White, terrorized his family, and drove him out of the state. He actually fled the state and didn't run for re-election. And after he was hounded from office in 1900, no black citizen served in Congress from North Carolina until 1992. That's almost a century later. So that was amazingly effective in keeping black men out of national office. And as far as local office, three of the ten aldermen in 1898 were black men, and they were all forced to resign at gunpoint during the coup. And after they were removed, no black citizen served on the Wilmington Council until 1972. So that's you know almost three quarters of a century later. And as you mentioned, this was basically a blueprint for voter suppression. And we see it, you know, 123 years later, white conservatives in the North Carolina legislature are working as hard as they can to suppress the Black vote, first through voter ID laws that were actually tossed out by the federal courts. And one federal court said that these voter ID laws targeted African Americans with almost surgical precision. But the white conservatives in the legislature, and by the way, the North Carolina legislature, the Republican delegation is 100% white, just as the Democratic white supremacist delegation in 1898 was 100 percent white. So all these years later, not much has changed. Another technique in 1898 that the white supremacists perfected was gerrymandering. They squeezed all the black voters, the black majority at the time, into two wards to, to dilute their voting power. Today, the North Carolina legislature or the the conservatives in the legislature are using gerrymandering to squeeze blacks into a few districts, again, to dilute their voting power. And the federal courts on more than one occasion has thrown out their map, saying they were violations of the 14th Amendment, that they were racial gerrymanders. But these white conservatives keep coming up with new plans and testing the system. But overall, the attempt, just as it was in 1898, is to suppress the Black vote. The only difference is they're not using overt violence. I mean, they're not killing people in the streets, but they definitely are trying to intimidate Black voters by passing these laws that give the voters and so-called poll watchers the ability to go in and challenge votes and they focus on Black voters and try to challenge their right to vote. So it's depressing to me to see just the same tensions and these same techniques being used just a little more subtly today than they were, you know, 123 years ago, but still white conservatives very, very much committed to suppressing the Black vote.
1: George Henry White, he really went to my home state of New Jersey, yeah. started his own community and encouraged Black people to leave Wilmington and yeah. to leave the South because Black people were not able to exercise not only their right to vote, right. but just to live without the daily constant threat of violence.
2: Yeah, his parting words when he left North Carolina was, I cannot live in North Carolina and be treated as a man. He actually said, God damn, North Carolina, the state of my birth as well. He was completely disillusioned and just enraged at the way he and his family had been treated.
1: George Henry White. He is one of my favorite historical figures in North Carolina's history. Born a slave on December 18th, 1852 in Roslindale, North Carolina, White's father was a free working class farmer and his mother was a slave. As author and journalist David Zucchino just mentioned, white was the last african-american u.s congressman of the 19th century a graduate of howard university white was admitted to the bar in 1879 and opened a law office in New Bern, north carolina afterwards his distinguished career includes roles as principal at several black public schools and two terms in the u.s house of representatives from 1897 to 1901 White took to the floor of Congress to protest the bloody 1898 Wilmington coup d'etat, drawing the ire of segregationists. In January 1900, the year that the suffrage amendment passed in North Carolina disenfranchising Black men, White became the first member of Congress to introduce legislation making lynching a federal crime, though the bill was defeated. With the U.S. Constitution's promise of equal voting rights no longer a reality at the turn of the century, Black men in North Carolina lost their vote and George Henry White lost his seat. White eventually left North Carolina and headed north, convinced that economic power would be the path to equality for Black Americans. He began a new effort to create self-sufficiency and financial growth for his race. White envisioned a community where Black families could own land, become entrepreneurs, establish businesses, and educate their children. He realized his dream with the establishment of Whitesboro in my home state of New Jersey. Many of the community's settlers also came from North Carolina, among them White's family and friends. The White family built the Odessa Inn, a hotel in Whitesboro, where they enjoyed summer holidays. In 1908, White completed construction of the town's first school, the beginning of a tradition of education that has produced a number of successful people over the years. The town of Whitesboro remains White's living legacy, home to many individuals who shared his vision of freedom, leadership, entrepreneurship, and family unity. White's post-congressional career includes serving as honorary trustee for Howard University, a seat on the board of Berrien Manual Training Institute, a trustee of North Carolina's Biddle University, a seat on the board of directors of Frederick Douglass Hospital, and as a director of the Home for the Protection of Colored Women. White was an early leader in the NAACP and remained active in Republican politics. He became assistant city solicitor for Philadelphia in 1917. White died on December 28, 1918. He was interred in Philadelphia's Eden Cemetery, joined later by his daughter, Mamie Whitesboro's first school teacher, and George Jr., a Pittsburgh attorney. In his farewell speech on the day before his departure from Congress, White said, quote, This Mr. Chairman is perhaps the Negro's temporary farewell to the American Congress. But let me say, Phoenix-like he will rise up someday and come again. These parting words are in behalf of an outraged, heartbroken, bruised and bleeding but God-fearing people, faithful, industrious, loyal people, rising people, full of potential force. Mr. Chairman, in the trial of Lord Bacon, when the court disturbed the counsel for the defendant, Sir Walter Raleigh, raised himself up to his full height and, addressing the court, said, Sir, I am pleading for the life of a human being. The only apology that I have to make for the earnestness with which I have spoken is that I am pleading for the life, the liberty, the future happiness and manhood suffrage for one eighth of the entire population of the United States. Quote. After his speech was nearly forgotten for more than a century, George Henry White's stirring words rang out to Congress once again in 2009. In a speech before the Congressional Black Caucus, President Barack Obama quoted White's farewell address to Congress, not only for himself, but for his entire race. And he recalled the prophetic promise White made at that dark moment when hopes for Black representation in the United States, Congress seemed all but gone. President Obama again recited White's final words. Quote, This Mr. Chairman is perhaps the Negro's temporary farewell to the American Congress. But let me say Phoenix-like, he will rise up someday and come again. It's unclear if White's condemnation of the Wilmington insurrection cost him his congressional seat, though it seems unlikely there would be Black representation in Congress or even North Carolina's state legislature after the 1900 suffrage amendment. Nevertheless, Wilmington is a good but extreme example of the white supremacist backlash to African-American political participation and advancement in post-Reconstruction North Carolina. The shocking, brazen and brutal nature of the 1898 Wilmington insurrection and coup d'etat had nearly immediate effects on communities across North Carolina, including notably the city of New Bern. Decades prior in the 1700s, New Bern experienced a boom in growth, and eventually it became a popular town that attracted many African Americans. Newburn's Bern's multidimensional Black experience included African Americans who were enslaved, free, and even those who owned slaves themselves. During the Civil War, New Bern was considered a Mecca for freedom. By 1860, Free Blacks made up nearly 13% of New Bern's population, the largest number of free Blacks in any North Carolina city or town at the time. And that was before the Emancipation Proclamation. Missionaries began to pour into the state, including James Walker Hood. In 1864, a missionary sent from Connecticut, who established hundreds of churches along the coast of North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia, based on the premise that the Christian faith and racial justice are inseparable. Thousands of freed blacks also poured into the city, many drawn to New Bern's thriving port, which offered many opportunities. Churches helped free Blacks settle into their new lives. A large Black population helped build churches, schools, businesses, newspapers, and other institutions. Blacks in New Bern eventually founded North Carolina's first Black-owned bank, the Mutual Aid Bank, in 1896. Now, this was an era in which a large, thriving Black middle class in New Bern exercised some political, economic, and cultural influence. They included families like Charles Petty and Sarah Dudley Petty who played an integral role in the growth of the Black middle class and promoted gender and racial equality in 19th century New Bern. Encouraged by her husband, Sarah wrote a column for the Star of Zion newspaper and even preached her own sermons. It was a time of great hope for many African Americans. Mr. and Mrs. Petty's belief in racial progress was thwarted, however, by a growing white supremacy movement that culminated again in the 1898 Wilmington insurrection and coup d'etat, just two years before the larger and more widespread white supremacy campaign of 1900, when the North Carolina legislature had effectively revoked the right of Black men to vote by enacting discriminatory policies. This came in the form of the suffrage amendment to North Carolina's constitution, which added a literacy test and a poll tax requirement for voting. Special provisions provided a modicum of protection for white voters, particularly poor white, illiterate voters, which stipulated that anyone who was eligible to vote before January of 1867, that was before the 15th Amendment, which sought to protect the voting rights of African-American men after the Civil War and was adopted into the U.S. Constitution in 1870, was exempted from literacy restrictions. Additionally, a grandfather clause stipulated that anyone who was an ancestor who met this requirement was also eligible to vote as long as they registered by December 1st, 1908. Codified Jim Crow had been established in North Carolina. As previously established, the 1898 insurrection and coup d'etat became a dry run for the larger 1900 white supremacist campaign. The Wilmington massacre inspired white supremacists both in North Carolina and across the South, showing them that they could murder Blacks with impunity, ignore the rule of law, and even overthrow a local government if it served the cause of white supremacy. In North Carolina, the architects of the 1898 Wilmington insurrection used these same tactics to broaden their influence and spearhead the 1900 white supremacist campaign, which again led to restrictive voting measures that targeted Blacks without actually mentioning race and effectively eradicated Black votes in the state and stymied political participation among African-Americans. As for the petties, their story also has an unfortunate ending. After the 1898 Wilmington insurrection, many blacks in North Carolina were fearful of another Wilmington massacre. And like former African-American Congressman George Henry White disillusioned by the blow to black progress that the white supremacist campaigns dealt to black communities. Charles Petty died suddenly in 1900, the same year that the suffrage amendment passed in the state legislature. A disenchanted Sarah moved north with her family. Unfortunately, Sarah Dudley Petty died six years later at the young age of 37. It would be another 60 years before Black men and women in North Carolina would experience the freedom the petties experienced in the late 19th century progressive Newburn, The white supremacist campaigns of 1898 and 1900, however, did not just influence the laws that were passed. They also influenced the way those laws were enforced. In his book, Jim Crow and North Carolina, the legislative program from 1865 to 1920, author and attorney Richard Pascal argues that the law reflects the times in which they are crafted and the people who craft them. He explains that the, quote, racial contagion, end quote, that swept through North Carolina during the white supremacist campaigns of 1830. 18- Ninety-eight and 1900 caused the pendulum, so to speak, of white attitudes regarding race to swing in an extreme manner towards white supremacist doctrine, so much so that the application of law saw a dramatic shift as well. For example, he points out that it is not necessarily accurate to say that Black voting in North Carolina was eliminated by the 1900 amendment, which required a literacy test and poll tax because the literacy test was deemed constitutional by the Supreme Court court and based on census data, the illiteracy rate for Black males decreased after 1900, meaning a significant number of Black males would have been eligible to vote then, Even with the 1900 Amendment in place, he argues around 40 percent of African-Americans should have been able to meet the legal standards to vote within the first two decades of the 20th century. Despite this, Black voter participation was virtually eliminated after 1900, again until the Voting Rights Act of 1965, because of the discriminatory implementation of the law. Here to explain further is author and attorney Richard Pastel. Argue that, and this was really important, I think, to mention because I don't think it's something a lot of people think about, but that the law reflects the times in which they're crafted and the people who craft them. And then you explain that the racial contagion, quote unquote, that swept through North Carolina during the white supremacy campaigns of 1898 and 1900, it causes the pendulum of white attitudes regarding race to swing farther towards adherence to white supremacist doctrines almost blindly in such a way that the application of the law saw this dramatic shift and how voting in North Carolina among Blacks, as you mentioned, had just dropped off after 1900. And based on the way the law was structured, as you mentioned, Black illiteracy dropped, you know, towards the latter part of the century and then into the 1900s. So more Blacks should have been qualified to vote under the legal standards of the law, you even say 40% of African Americans should have been able to meet the legal standards to vote within the first two decades of the 20th century. So could you just kind of expound on that?
3: Sure. So again, to take a half step back without going back over all the history, though, when the fusionist party, the Republicans and the populist banded together to displace the Democrats in the 1890s, It was really the case that the Democrats came back in a very powerful, ugly fashion to try to make race the central line because the Democrats realized that if they could split the white populace off from the Republican Party, which had a majority of African Americans in the Republican Party, if they could split the whites off of the populace and bring them home to the Democratic Party, then they would be back in power for good. And so the 1898 and 1900 political campaigns were very ugly. As I've said, they drew a line in the sand on race and they really worked to poison white minds on race in terms of sexually that, that black men were these uncontrollable you know, animals because to them, You know, there were civil rights and political rights, but social equality was always this bogeyman that they could bring out and say, oh, my God, if we allow blacks political equality, then by God, they're going to be dating your daughter next week. And that kind of stoking that kind of fear about men sexually, politically, socially, they worked on all those fronts to try to corrupt white minds. And that's really what it was. It was poisoning white minds. Any African-American who was accused of any kind of crime, and I mean, really, we're almost talking about jaywalking, would be a front page story in the News and Observer, the big state paper here in Raleigh, and in the Charlotte Observer, you know, playing up black crime, making African-Americans out to be this horrible race that didn't have just designs on wanting some political equality at the voting booth, but social equality wanted to be taken as equals in, in all senses. And, you know, just to be, you know, upfront about this, we can talk about legal equality, political equality, whether there were African Americans were entitled to have a vote. And there were some white Southerners who thought that. But at the time, I mean, we we're really talking about white supremacy is ingrained in the white ethos of the time. I mean, there are really no whites who do not think that they are members of a superior race. People talk in racial terms. This is an era in which people talk about eugenics and Darwinism and social Darwinism and all these terms about, you know, genes being uh, perfected and animals and of all kinds, you know, constantly evolving to become better. And whites simply saw themselves to be better. And there are gradations along a spectrum but there's no one on the other side which says that Blacks are equal. I mean, there may be five people in, in the state who are whites who believe that, but really you're talking about zero. But to get back to the point, once the white minds are are poisoned in this fashion, it, it looked to me like once Blacks are removed from the voting booth, that you would see really a tsunami of Jim Crow laws. That if they don't have any way to respond, they don't have any way to hit back through political power, then the whites would just essentially pile on. And that's actually not what happened. And that was the kind of the impetus for the whole thing, that once I gathered all these statutes, what jumped out at me was there weren't statutes of any real import after 1900 and for, you know, really 10 years after these white supremacy campaigns you know, enforcing de jure racial discrimination. And that really just kind of like hit me in the head. I'm like, what what is going on here? Well, what I try to show is that even though you have laws of, that don't change, things are through laws, through the application laws, through the enforcement laws, they are changing in terms of race. So that over the 10, 15 years leading up to 1900, the funding of schools really becomes equalized. There's very little difference in terms of funding white schools versus black schools by the time you get to 1900. And there had been attempts. The white legislators had tried to pass these laws, which segregated tax revenues by race, that black tax revenues would go to black schools, white tax revenue would go to white schools and be divided along that way. And if you know anything about property holding by African-Americans at this time period, you're looking at a way to really handicap the African-American schools during this period. But those laws were struck down by the North Carolina Supreme Court. And you see, like I said, a real degree of equality in terms of funding by the time you get to 1900. But after 1900, even though the law doesn't change, the funding changes drastically, even though under the same statutes, because of the way discretion is given to county commissioners, the funding of white schools and black schools goes in radically different directions. And that's because, and and I think of the racial contagion, as I call it, that happened with the white supremacy campaigns of 1898 and 1900. That. White minds have been changed in really fundamental ways. I think there is a pendulum swing as I get older. I do see pendulum swings more and more in my life. And so this was a time where the pendulum swung very far away from equality and toward racial and white supremacy. And that's the case for the disenfranchisement amendment as well. I'm trying to make the point that even though the statute is race neutral in just terms of the ability to read and write. It is being applied in a way which is vastly different between white and black in North Carolina. And it was really applied in a way because, as I said, you know, it happens overnight. It happens at the drop of the hat, and it happens in every county and every city and township in this state from one end of the state to the other. That's really odd. And it's even odd because the people who drafted the disenfranchisement amendment, thought that there would be some residual Black voting in North Carolina, even under the standard that they had set in place. One of the people was named Furnifold Simmons, and Simmons was a terrible racist and all that, but he thought that probably you'd have 35 40,000 African Americans who could vote, simply because they were lineal descendants of people who had voted here in North Carolina prior to 1835. Free blacks had the ability to vote in North Carolina in 1835. John Hope Franklin, in his book on free blacks in North Carolina prior to the Civil War, made that point uh, rather eloquently decades ago. And so because of that grandfather clause, which was an attempt for whites, really poor whites, to get around literacy requirements, Ferdinand Full Simmons thought, though, that there would still be blacks who would be lineal descendants of free blacks who voted in North Carolina prior to 1868, that you would have some residual voting by them and that you would have people, African-Americans, obviously, who would pass the literacy requirements. And even that anticipation of the people who wrote the thing didn't come to pass. It was applied in a much more crazy kind of manner in terms of just reading the words than even the people who wrote it thought. And I think that's important. I think that's an indicator to some degree that things were changing through those political campaigns, that the people who drafted this in, in 1898, it's a different world by the time it goes into effect after 1900.
1: So two points. So one, I think North Carolina had the second largest number of free Blacks in the South, something like 30,000 by the middle of the 19th century. And secondly, it sounds like you're also talking about a change in the psyche or the pathology of white folks as it regards race, which seemed to really impact not just the way they thought about Black folks, but the way they treated them, because Black folks were so afraid of being killed or terrorized that they simply stopped voting. And between the terror that, you know, the Red Shirts and the KKK and other white supremacists inflicted upon Black communities and Also, the propaganda, as you mentioned, or the racial contagion that was a part of these white supremacy campaigns, it sounds like you're saying there was such a stark change in the psyche of, even though this was the South, you know, and slavery had only ended several decades before, it sounds like you're saying there was a real shift in the psyche of whites as it regards Black folks and the way they believed they could maintain control. because. Ultimately, this is all about survival. And it sounds like you're saying whites thought the best way they could ensure their own future was, you know, to impose these sort of barbaric tactics to keep black folks from having any political power. I could be misinterpreting that. I'm just trying to understand.
3: No, I think the psyche thing is exactly right. I'm I'm trying to say that you know, white minds were poisoned in a really Unique way here in North Carolina, kind of a whiplash from you know where North Carolina had been, which was a generally pretty moderate state on racial matters up until 1900, until these white supremacy campaigns of 1898 and 1900. In terms of why they did it, I I don't really get into that in the book, but you know to some degree there were certainly I mean there are all kinds of reasons and the reasons why you know, some poor white would go into the voting booth and vote for essentially himself and his black neighbor to be disenfranchised is always kind of a head scratching kind of proposition when, you know, as I said, it's often a case of which whites are going to be supreme as opposed to whites in general. But certainly there were some whites in the state, you know, and like I said, there's a variety, but a lot of the whites in the states who are pressing this in terms of leadership viewed this in, you know, a kind of upside-down world kind of way as the progressive view that this was the, you know, advanced way that if we could eliminate the African Americans from voting, then us enlightened whites can just have a high-minded discussion about politics and policy, and this would be the best for the state. Part of this is, you know, again, rooted in that kind of social Darwinism of that age. But it's just, you know, we are, you know, a higher evolved form and we can talk about these manners in a high minded manner and not have to worry about the mud of politics. And if we just get rid of the African-Americans in the voting booth, we can have this kind of world. And of course, what it really ended up resulting in was a political class, which did not pay any attention to the needs of lower class North Carolinians, white or black, that neglected the schools. North Carolina schools were, even into the 20th century, the worst in the nation. There's just no other way to cut it. The average daily number of days that children in North Carolina attended school, I believe in North Carolina, was something like 22, 23 days a year. That's all. That's it and the funding was abysmal, and so it was really political negligence on the part of these people who thought they were so enlightened that schools and the populace were just not being educated, and that only changes gradually over the 20th century, but you know North Carolina on the eve of the Civil War, I mean it's a very complicated history, but on the eve of the Civil War really had probably the best public school system in the South, and that was just decimated After the war, and it did not recover until well into the 20th century because of this kind of enlightened white leadership, which just neglected this, you know, aspect of which could have made North Carolina a better place for everyone. And viewed education really, except for one or two grades, as just being, you know, if you wanted your child to have a, a better education into the fifth or sixth grades, then you need to pay for it. I mean, that's just ludicrous. But that was the way they thought. And, you know, like I said, it was just political negligence by this white political class who thought, you know, that we know better.
1: i would never really thought of this in terms of like winning or losing, you know, but I guess the idea of winning and losing really just depends on the time in which, you know, you're talking about, because yes, maybe the white supremacists won, you know, after this amendment was passed in the early part of the 20th century, but did North Carolina lose more than it gained as a result of this over time, which I think you can argue it did.
3: It's, you know, cutting off your nose in spite of your face. I mean, Wilmington, you know, the the long-term trends may have been for Charlotte and Raleigh to be the economic engines of the state, and what happened in the massacre that happened in Wilmington in 1898 may or may not have you know, change that trajectory. But I think it certainly hurt Wilmington in terms of Black population, Black resources, because they just moved out. I mean, you see an absolute drop in African-American population after the November 1898 massacre. And no doubt that it hurts the state to be so Focused on race instead of just issues at large. I mean, you put so much effort into trying to discriminate and take all this effort to do all these things instead of just try to help, you know, even lower class whites and blacks. It really is a testament to people who uh, are willing to shoot themselves in the foot and um, retard their own state's development overall just to spite a few people who they believe to be you know, not as good as they are. It's really unfortunate.
1: Right. It seemed to me as if the federal government simply turned a blind eye to how North Carolina and other Southern states were enforcing their laws because they deemed it politically expedient to do so at the time. And for example, in an interview, constitutional scholar Lawrence Goldstone said, quote, what the radical Republicans wanted, led by Charles Sumner in the Senate and Thaddeus Stevens in the House, was probably the largest experiment in social engineering ever taken. They wanted federal government to take 4 million newly freed slaves and integrate them fully into society virtually immediately. Now, we know this didn't happen as smoothly as a lot of folks had hoped, but ultimately, it also didn't happen because the Supreme Court, according to Goldstone, simply stopped enforcing a lot of the laws on the books at the time or struck down some laws that were meant to achieve those ends and ultimately stopped enforcing the 14th and 15th amendment. That's my opinion. I wonder what a legal scholar like yourself thinks about that. And I wonder, do you think if the federal government had actually started to enforce federal laws and hold North Carolina and other Southern states accountable for the way they enforce their state laws, even as it relates to voting, whether we would have seen such a decline in Black voter participation and and minority voter participation after 1900?
3: So the question is not complicated, but the answer is. And this goes to the way in which law is a reflection of society and can't get too far out of line with societal views. And so It's absolutely true that if the Supreme Court in the 1890s and early 1900s had taken a more late 20th century view of voting restrictions and things like that, the world would have been different. But you can't take the Supreme Court out of that kind of situation. And you use the term political expediency. What I guess I would say is that in terms of late 19th century, early 20th century America, the South and the North aren't that far apart in terms of white viewpoint as to race. I think. I'll make a generalization that we often, I think, try to view the South as something different and not us. The way they treated African-Americans, well, that's the way they did it. And that's because they're different. And I think that's not the case. I think that trying to make the South into a them and it really, you know, confuses the issue because they is us. we are all in this together. And there were, you know, kind of uniform white views on race coming out of Reconstruction. Part of that is a lack of willingness on whites to keep the pressure on the white South to make things better. Because Reconstruction, if it had succeeded, could not be something that was going to take place in 10 years. You've had a few centuries of slavery, that's not going to be erased in 12 years of federal law. It would require a continued effort on the part of the federal government. And quite frankly, a lot of Northerners did not have the stomach for that continued attention. I mean, we just, we're Americans, we have short attention spans, we move on in a lot of ways. I mean, you can see it with regard to Afghanistan and, you know, 2001, 2002, we're very interested in Afghanistan over the last five years. News stories about Afghanistan are few and far between. And then people are like, wait, why are we getting out? And how did this all happen? Well, you just haven't been paying attention. But the point is that white views in the north were not out of line with what was going on in the south. And that happens to a degree also with regard to what's happening in the world. America at this time is kind of toying with the idea of having colonies. And those colonies for the United States were the Philippines, Cuba, these kind of places, and they were not Anglo-Saxons. And so whites in the North generally thought that America could stomp into Manila and do whatever it wanted and not worry about what the locals thought at all that, again, is a racial attitude toward the people who live in the Philippines that's not all that different from white Southern attitudes. The point here is that to the degree law reflects the society which it's in, the Supreme Court, you know, really is not that far out of line and really is not out of line with societal interests at this time. So, Yes, there are ways to pick apart Plessy versus Ferguson, there are ways to think about the failure of the courts to enforce the Civil Rights Act of 1866, to enforce the mandates of the 14th Amendment, and there were people who were making those arguments back then. But by and large, the country did not think of those matters in those kind of terms. I mean, you have a whole school of historians being created at Columbia University in New York by a historian named Dunning. And Professor Dunning, you know, had a view of Reconstruction and of the South that was, you know, Reconstruction was the worst thing and was an attempt to, I believe in his terms, to Africanize the South. This was a view being put out in Northern universities, and it's not something that you would expect the Supreme Court or the federal courts or Washington, even in terms of Congress or the president or anything, to deviate that far from. So yes, things could have been different if we had enforced those mandates. But in a lot of ways, we shouldn't have expected the Supreme Court or any of the courts to have gone that far out of the mainstream because that was where they come from. I mean, the Supreme Court today is not that far out of the mainstream, by and large. I mean, you may have Alito and some people may think that, wow, they're really out on the edge. But, you know, in terms of a majority, the majority of the Supreme Court, you've got people who are not out of line with a lot of thought in American society. They're not going to veer that far from the culture in which they exist, is my point. And so to the degree that Washington dropped the ball to the degree the Supreme Court dropped the ball. It's really, that's true, and it's also a function of where the uh, white society was at that point in terms of their appetite for enforcing these regulations of having federal involvement, because that's what it would have taken in matters of voting, education, and all these kind of matters. So you see cases like the case out of Georgia in uh, 1899, where the local school board gets rid of the black school, but maintains a white school. And that gets to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says, well, they're allowed to make that kind of judgment about discretion about how they want to spend their money. It's not unreasonable. And so and I think there's a line in that opinion which says, you know, it would take, you know, a re- revamping of our. Sense of the federal government to think that the federal government needs to get involved here with a local school board to enforce that kind of equality. Now, you know, to modern eyes, that ain't the way it works today. You would have federal courts who would pay attention, but that's just a data point as to the degree to which issues of federalism and the role of the federal government and the role of the courts were not. Going to be a backstop to the problems that were being brought to the fore by these Jim Crow laws in the southern legislatures.
1: episode, we begin to dive into the community of Durham, North Carolina, specifically Durham's Black Wall Street. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It's really important you do so. The more you do, the more people we can reach with this history.